Welcome to Heart to Heart with Michael, featuring your host, Michael Lieben. Our program is designed to empower the bereaved community with information and stories from those who have suffered the most terrible loss. Michael Lieben, himself a bereaved father, will be meeting with people from around the world to share and to draw hope from their experiences. And now, here is Michael Lieben. Welcome to the third episode of Heart to Heart with Michael, a program for the bereaved community. Our purpose is to empower members of our community. Congenital heart defects claim far too many heart warriors' lives. It is a leading cause of death amongst newborns, and consequently, there are a lot of bereaved parents suffering the loss of their precious children. What happens to parents when a child dies of a congenital heart defect? How do they survive even one day? The thought of our precious child dying is unfathomable, but for an unknown number of parents, this is their reality. Who can help them? What can we say or what can we do? Our topic today is dealing with death and dying, and we have an excellent guest, ordained minister Daniel Miles. Daniel Miles is a professional chaplain who has over a decade of experience providing emotional and spiritual support to patients, families, and staff in hospital settings. He has done extensive work in providing care to people experiencing grief and loss and has led numerous workshops on caregiver support. Daniel also has firsthand experience with family grief and caregiver burnout. When he was 18, his 15-year-old brother, Andrew, died of a brain tumor. Daniel is a board-certified chaplain through the Association of Professional Chaplains and an Association of Clinical Pastoral Education Supervisor. He's an ordained minister and endorsed by the Alliance of Baptists and currently serves on their board. Daniel is also the manager for spiritual care services at Carolina's Healthcare System University in Charlotte, North Carolina. Daniel, welcome to Heart to Heart with Michael, and thank you for being with us. Thank you. It's wonderful to be a part of your show. Well, let's just jump right in and tell me about the work that you do at the hospital. And were you there, the chaplain on call, and, and what what are the pressures of, the, of that? Currently, I uh, am the manager of our chaplaincy department, and uh, that means that I've got um, one staff chaplain and several chaplain interns who report to me that I manage and supervise. Um, and I do a mix of uh, education, um, of uh, kind of administrative functioning to make sure that our services run well. And in addition to that, I also do some direct patient care and staff support. So I do a little bit of everything. I'm fortunate that I've worked my way up the ladder and don't have to do a lot of on-call anymore. Um, mm-hmm. But during the day when I'm here, I might still get called to emergencies and crises and deaths that occur in the hospital. Um, when I started my career uh, some years ago, um, probably about 12 years ago, I was in that rotation of doing the on-calls and spending long nights and weekends in the hospital and uh, responding to any of the um, the calls that we got. And that you know that often ranges from people in the night who are just scared and lonely, need someone to talk, um, to being called to the emergency department because you know a car accident or gunshot or some other trauma has come in and being present with the family uh, who's being told that their loved one has died suddenly. Um, so it's a it's a broad spectrum of um, situations and events that uh, I'm um, both fortunate and burdened to encounter when I'm working with people really of all walks of life in this hospital setting. It's interesting that you say both fortunate and burdened. Uh, we know that dealing with grief and loss is very, very difficult. So I'm curious what attracted you to, to that kind of work. What attracted me to doing this work is experiencing firsthand what it feels like to lose 
um, a loved one, um, and as you mentioned in your uh, lovely introduction, um, that I, you know, our family lost um, lost my younger brother. Um, he was 15 when he was diagnosed, and it was a very aggressive brain tumor, and um, it took about nine months. Um, and we did several, you know, aggressive treatments, and um, it just was not. It was really just not a survivable tumor. And so it was a quick progression of his illness to, mm. to when he died. And so this was my senior year of high school, uh, his freshman year of high school. Um, and we we had a lot of support, and we had a lot of well-wishers who didn't know what to do, and we had people who just really made things worse. <laughs> so we had uh, kind of the <laughs> yeah. spectrum of, 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 of experiences. Um, and I think for me, it uh, it was hit home that a lot of these folks were people who um, who came from our community of faith. So I grew up in a church, and a lot of people came, kind of bearing the the banner of of um, of faith and religion, and again experiencing all the ways that that could be both helpful and not. And so that's really what drew me to being a representative of um, of a faith tradition to engage with people when they were suffering. And in many ways, I think encountering those ultimate meaning questions, um, and, and honestly, part of what I love doing in the hospital is that regardless of what kind of spiritual background people have, uh, when you're faced with a terminal illness or even not a terminal illness, just a significant illness, um, our own mortality becomes very um, present to us. And that calls into questions about meaning and purpose and what mm-hmm. do I do to make my life worth living and um so I, I find it a great gift to be able to engage people in those spaces. Those are really sacred, powerful spaces. Uh and it's also a burden in the sense that it's a responsibility I take greatly. It's heavy to carry that with people. Mm-hmm. I have a story that I tell um about one night when I was on call, kind of in my early residency days and um, I got called in the middle of the night. There's a there was a patient that we had on our cardiac unit, and the patient's wife and son were present at the bedside. And the mother had the wife mother had left to go home to get some rest, and lived about half an hour away. And so as soon as she got home, the patient coded uh, and died. Mm. And they had called the patient's wife and said, we need you to come back, but didn't want to inform her on the phone what was going on. So she was driving back. The son was still there. He knew what had happened, and the staff wanted me to sit with the son while he waited for his mother to arrive. So I went up there, and this young man was only a year or two younger than me. Um, And so here he was in the middle of the night trying to figure out what he was going to tell his mother when she arrived. And... um, we had a brief conversation about that, and I think it went something like, what should I tell her? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> what What do you think you should tell her? And he said, I don't think I'm going to need to tell her anything because she's going to see it on my face. And I said, yeah, that's probably right. So we just sat there, and then out of nowhere he said, well, what did you do wrong to get stuck with such a shitty job? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I, I mean, I really didn't know how to answer that, but he just said, here you are at two o'clock in the morning sitting with me till I tell my mom that my dad just died. Like, how do you, how do you pull such a, such a tough detail? This is, this is the work I want to do. Like you need somebody to be here with you. 
maybe more than you've ever needed someone. And, um, and it's a, it's an honor for me to be able to be that person. And also it's a, it's a heavy thing. I don't want to take it. I don't want to take it lightly. What are some of the common things that you see between different families? And I guess it crosses all sorts of religious lines. Uh, you mean like religiously or uh, like well, just in, what are some of the common threads? Someone just landed in your lap right now with a, with a difficult situation. You don't know who he is and you're going in there, but there must be something that binds them or there are certain things that come up or questions that they all have. I think one of the most common uh, themes that I hear is why, why did this, why did this happen? Why is it happening to us? Why didn't it happen another way? Um, I think no matter what faith background a person has or doesn't have, that's a pretty common uh, refrain. Why? Why is this happening? I think that the next refrain I hear most often is what now or what next? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and both of those, I think, are variations on meaning making, just how how we make meaning and significance out of the things that happen to us. Um and people do this with everything. I think people do this with happy events. They do this with the birth of a new child. They do this with um, a wedding or you know the beginning of a new relationship. They do this with new jobs, buying a home. I mean, there's lots of um, things that people do this in a good way, but it's hard, I think, when we find ourselves faced with, this is not the story I had for myself. Um, and I think that, the, I mean, really, that's probably everything kind of boils down to, I'm not sure how to make meaning out of this terrible thing. I would imagine that's probably the most difficult part of all of it is trying to understand what's going on to you. We are also now up against a break, so we're going to go. But don't go away too far, because when we come back, we're going to have a chance to talk more with Daniel about how he helps people deal with death and dying when we return to Heart to Heart with Michael. Hi, I'm John Montez of NBC's hit acapella show, The Sing-Off. In acapella music, it takes a team to create a sound that many will enjoy, just like it'll take a team to help my good friend Miles Schweitzer, an HLHS survivor. Let's help Miles fulfill his dream and make a big enough sound to bring awareness to congenital heart disease. Please visit him at GoFundMe.com backwards slash The Miles Project. Miles with the Y. Again, that's GoFundMe.com The Miles Project. This is for Miles. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Michael. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our program, please send an email to Michael Lieben at michael at hearttoheartwithmichael.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Michael. Many of those we love pass away far too soon. Often enough, we don't always know what will be supportive to those who are left grieving. How can we best help those we love who are suffering the loss of someone they love? So Daniel, as a minister... How do you answer, or what do you say to people who blame God for their loss? Well, that's a great question. Um, I usually just let them speak what they need to speak. Um, I, I feel I feel like God probably doesn't need me to stand up as God's defender. Um, so if folks are in a place where they need to blame God, I typically let them. Um, and I guess it also depends on where, what stage they are in their grief process. Certainly, I hear a lot of that in the most immediate um, stages, right, either right after a bad diagnosis or right after a declaration of uh, of a person's death, or saying, "Why did God do this to me? Why would God let this happen?" Um, and I typically respond with some form of "I don't know," and then to invite people to talk about what that feels like. Um, mm. And my sense is that if you give people the space 
to to be honest about what they're thinking and feeling, they will work their way to where they need to be. So feeling as if God is the one who has caused you to suffer is typically not a very pleasant feeling for a lot of folks. And I think there's a temptation among lots of folks to stand up and defend God and say, oh, God didn't do this, or if God did this, then God must have had a really good reason for it. Um, I, I don't think that it's real helpful to tell people how they need to interpret their experience. I think it's far more helpful to let people work their way into whatever it is. So some folks will work their way to saying, God didn't do this. Um, either God's not involved in this or where God is is involved in is in my grief, is in supporting me, is in helping me heal. Other people will come to a place and say, well, God must have some plan, that this fits into God's plan and that God did this to me or let this happen to me because God has some reason for it. Um, people are different and they find different things helpful. And uh, my response is usually to create some kind of space where people can work their way to whatever it is that gives them meaning in that situation. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to go a little bit to the side with this. When I first make contact with a bereaved family or anybody who is not a professional, what can we say or do that's helpful to not, you know, we don't want to hurt these people. What can, what can we say? I think the first thing to say to folks when they're bereaved is just, I'm so sorry um, that this is, this is hard and I, I hate this for you. Some version of an empathetic mm -hmm. joining to say this is, this is terrible and tragic and I wish things were different. Um, and there's a lot of ways that people do that. I know that this is work I do with the chaplains that I supervise who are learning, that they want to have a script. And I don't know that there's a script beyond just what's some heartfelt way, heartfelt way of saying, I I'm really sorry for your loss. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's kind of the first best thing to say to people. And then I would say the next step would be uh, to just find some way of saying, how how are you doing? Um, mm -hmm. What what's going on? How are you feeling? What do you need right now? Um, and that you know, people aren't always able to answer that because it's overwhelming, and that's okay too. So to create it, that's sort of back to creating a space to give people the freedom to know it's it's okay if you don't know what you need. It's okay if you don't know how you're doing. But I'm here for you to figure that out. One of the things I ran into is that um, everybody comes in and thinks they're Job's best friend, and they. <laughs> What have you done? <laughs> right. I, I know right. as a heart parent, we often got blamed, you know, we must have done something to make these kids this way. And that's a terrible thing to hear. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's, it's also blatantly wrong. So right. I think it's really important if you can just tell somebody, it's okay to feel this way, whatever you're feeling, that's okay. Mm -hmm. And then they can come around and if they want to modify their, their anger later, they'll, they'll do that. But it's just so easy to say the wrong thing. So that's going to lead me now into the next question, which is the exact opposite of this question. What's not helpful? What can we avoid? What should we not do when we walk in? Well, I love that you bring up the story of Job. I think that's a beautiful, uh, just a beautiful example of what it is and how Job's friends do a lot of bad things. Yep. Um, and like you say, I think trying to – any way that you try to explain a person's grief or loss usually is a bad thing. Uh, of course, Jim's yeah, friends are 
do a lot of, well, you must have done something to deserve this, figure out what it is and fix it. Um, so that's a clearly a bad thing. But there's also other ways that people will try to explain it for you, to say things like, I mean, that's kind of back to saying, well, God must have meant for this to happen for some reason. Um, you know, one thing that's popular over here in the South is saying things like, well, God must have needed your loved one in heaven more than you need them here, which is not just not a helpful thing to hear. Yeah. Um, at all. So I think any ways that we try to explain, anytime that we're trying to explain for a person what their loss means to them, whether that's, that's in saying you must have done something or something like that. Yeah. Um, the other reason I love that you bring up Job's, the story of Job, is that you know if you read the story closely, Job's friends are actually really good friends for about a week. Uh, it, it tells us that you know when they first come to Job, it, the scripture says something like, they saw his suffering was so great that they tore his clothes and sat with him and said nothing. Uh, and that's, I think, like for about the first week, for about, I think it's like six or seven days, the text says that they just sat with him and said nothing. Um, that's, that's what I think we need when we're grieving, is for someone to just sit in the dirt with us mm-hmm. and just sit with us. And it's when we start sort of trying to make meaning for other people, that's when it, that's when it it's goes time to go. south. It's time to go. I want. I actually want to jump in on this because we are going to do a program on on Jewish mourning, and that's exactly what 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 we do is we sit at home for seven days, and people come, and yeah. they come and they comfort us, and it's there are things you can say and there are things you shouldn't say, but really sometimes just being there and just being with them and even silent. Is a is a very comforting and very good thing to know because you get to see really who how many friends you have and who they are and the whole world comes through your door for that week, and I think that's what you know that's that week that Job's friends sat there and they should have then gotten up and left. Right. Thank you so much, Daniel, for coming on the program and sharing with us so far. Now it's time for another commercial break, but stay with us because when we get back, we're going to talk with Daniel about survivor guilt. When we come back to heart to heart with Michael. When I saw so many of these CHG groups growing, I found family just ready to join me. Anyone who is a member of the adult congenital heart defect community can be a guest on our show. We have a great year planned and we look forward to sharing other interesting topics. Heart to Heart with Nicole and David, serving the ACHD community, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Michael. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on Michael's program, please email him at michael at hearttoheartwithmichael.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to our program, Heart to Heart with Michael, a program for the bereaved community. Today, we're talking with Daniel Miles, a minister who understands what it means to lose a loved one. So, Daniel, can you tell me a little bit about what you experienced with your brother and, and how long was his illness and were you involved personally with this care? My brother, um, it, it was a very quick illness. Uh, it was about nine months from his diagnosis until his death. There probably there's probably about I don't know six weeks before his diagnosis that he was experiencing symptoms. It took us a while to um, figure out what was going on, um, and it progressed quickly. He underwent radiation and received the complete total amount of radiation that a human being is allowed to have, um, at least in America at that time period, and then did two rounds of chemotherapy, um, none of which was successful. Um, I I would say that I was 
tangentially involved in his care. I was a senior in high school, and so finishing up my last year of high school, my parents were, um, my mother was doing the bulk of the care, and for his last two months, he was at home on hospice care, and so I helped out, um, helped out my mom, particularly during that summer. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't characterize myself as a caregiver so much in that situation, but I was certainly, I was there at the house experiencing all of what um, the care was involved. Well, what was that like? I mean, were your parents trying to shield you from, from what was happening or was everybody open about it? Um, that's a great question. Uh, I, I don't think anybody was trying to shield me from the, um, from the emotional pieces of it. I think that I, I do remember one evening uh, that home care came and taught my parents how to, um, how to administer IV medication through a port um, and so for those kinds of things, my parents really encouraged me to not be involved. I think some of that was so that they could focus on learning what they needed to learn, and some of that was to keep me from feeling uh, overburdened with responsibility. But in terms of kind of conversations within the family about what we were feeling and processing, that was very much encouraged. My mother is a retired counselor, um, mm-hmm. so feeling conversations were pretty um pretty commonplace in my household. And I remember several conversations of the four of us just processing what it meant, uh, how we were feeling. Um, I, I, you know, a memory I will, I will never forget is the conversation we had in which my brother said that he did not want to have any more treatment. And um, just what that, how each of us felt about that. And, uh, you know, my brother was 15. Um, it, you know, that this sort of adds different dynamics to it when you've got a minor who's receiving treatment and um, wanting him to feel like he's involved and also how, you know, what do you say when you want them to keep getting treatments and, you know, he's saying, this is, this is suffering. I don't want to do anymore. I'd rather die. I, I, I think that at some point people come to this understanding on their own. I've done what I can do with myself. I'm finished. And, there's a point where you just sort of have to let them go. And that's a very difficult moment. Right. Right. So that brings me to my next question. And that is, how do you recognize someone who's experiencing survivor's guilt? Did you in fact yourself have a little bit of that? And, and what do you, what do you do with people? How do you treat them when you, when you see them now when you see that? Yeah, I absolutely did. Um, I remember feeling it even before he died, just in terms of, um, you know, a lot of people would say things like, gosh, why did this happen to Andrew? And uh, I just don't understand why it would happen to him. And I remember thinking, well, why didn't it happen to me? Um, you know, and that, and that gets overwhelming because people are often, you know, when bad things happen, people say, gosh, why me? But when bad things happen to other people, (laughs) sometimes we think, well, why didn't that happen to me? That could have been me. It's not like cancer cares who it attacks. Um, why didn't that happen to me? Um, and then I also remember feeling particularly because it was just my brother and I, we were the only two um, siblings. And so once my brother died and I started, Kyle went off to university the next week and remember feeling like, well, geez, all my parents' expectations now rest on me, um, oh. which is not something I got from them. I think that was, you know, they weren't, they weren't putting that on me. I was taking that on as a part mm-hmm. of that guild. So those are the sorts of things that I look out for with people who are experiencing survivor's guilt, the feeling that now I've got to take on more responsibility. Um, and usually that's not experienced in a way that's helpful. That's not experienced as a, as a positive. Um, 
other times people sort of process it in terms of things I should have done. So I see this particularly with people who um, lose a loved one to a trauma. Um, gosh, if I had whatever, then they wouldn't have been driving when this happened. Um, or I should have said something sooner. Um, do, do people look at, at survivor's guilt as a, a form of self-punishment? I need to suffer now because I didn't before? Yeah, I think I think sometimes there's there's some level of sort of it feels in the not knowing what to do that some of the taking on of suffering seems to give people a sense of of meaning in in that. I mean, it seems sort of crazy when you're not in the middle of it to say, well, gosh, that doesn't seem like a healthy thing. Why would you do that? But when you're overwhelmed and you don't know what to do, um, that's a way of starting to try to make meaning for oneself. Uh, and it's maybe long-term not the most helpful thing to do. We're all looking for things to have meaning. We want to mm-hmm. make sense out of things that happen. And so when bad things happen, we want there to be an explanation. And the reason for that is it sometimes helps us to feel like, oh gosh, the, wor- the world still makes sense. <laughs> um, or this is how I can keep this from happening next time. Um, and, you know, I-, I get the human need to make sense of that right away. And that that can put us in places that aren't helpful. So we start blaming ourselves for things that we're not responsible for. We feel guilty. Um, we feel like we've done something wrong because we're still alive, um, mm-hmm. or that this, you know, that we're not the ones who are sick, or we're not the ones who died. Um, and the, I mean that that's just a, a not helpful. I've yet to see someone make that be healthy for them <laughs> long term. <laughs> and and we all do it to some degree. I mean that's not to pathologize it. But um, no. yeah, long term. I mean, it's like denial. Denial can be really helpful in the immediate, and long term, that's not gonna that's not gonna end up going real well. You recently did a program with Chris Perez on caregiver burnout. So, can we discuss how that might relate to survivor's guilt? I know there must be a certain commonality there. Many of the survivors are themselves the caregivers, and so there's got to be a lot of heaviness going on there. Oh, absolutely. Um, it, it can be really. Um, insidious how they work together in terms of survivor guilt and compassion fatigue. If you're the caregiver taking care of um, of a child or an ailing parent or someone close to you in your life who has an illness and you're the one providing the care, that sense of survivor guilt can drive you to push yourself uh, in ways that are not healthy. You know, not taking care of yourself, not eating when you should, not sleeping enough, taking on more emotional responsibility than then you really need to, to take on because the feeling like I I need to, you know, in terms of kind of like your language of, you know, need to punish myself. I, ha- I have to do penance for being the one who's healthy. Um, and my penance is to give and give and give to this other person. Or sometimes it's just in sense of it's not fair that you're sick and dying and I'm not. And my attempt to try to rebalance the scales is to work really, really hard to ease your suffering. Um, and certainly, you know, caring for those we love, seeking to ease suffering, these are all good values. Um, but the more we do it out of a sense of misplaced guilt, the more likely we are to drive ourselves into the ground. Um, and, you know, that leads to compassion fatigue and burnout to where we spend ourselves and have nothing left to give. And it's and it seems crazy. Again, if you're not in the middle of it, it seems really irrational and strange. But I definitely know that there are people who will feel like they are personally responsible for their loved one having a bad night, or getting mm-hmm. sick from a from a drug, or 
Um, and it, you know, it doesn't make sense if you're not in the midst of it. But when you're sucked into that that place of grief and pain and particularly that guilt, you can really take on, this is my fault, and the only way I can make it better is to give of myself beyond what I have. And that can also, I think, lead to anger directed at the sick person, which is really not good. But I've seen that happen where the caregiver has been so totally burned out that it's, you know, you did this to me. And that's right. a completely bizarre way to be. But I can certainly understand how that would happen if you take on much too much of the responsibility for yourself. Do you see a lot of that? I do. That's actually a wonderful point. I'm glad you bring that up. Um, that's not at all an uncommon uh, experience. Um, and of course, what happens is that caregivers get frustrated and angry and resentful that mm -hmm. my life is now nothing but taking care of you, which also brings its own feelings of guilt. So now I feel guilty that I'm so angry at you for having you know, a heart defect or cancer or whatever it is. Um, and so it just becomes a cycle of being resent, resentful and then guilty and ashamed and then resentful. And um, But I think that's a very common experience that we have, that when something feels like a burden, we, we, we get to an angry, resentful place. Well, I wish we had more time. But I think it's important that people air these thoughts and air their, their anger and their fear and know that, first of all, that's totally normal. And they should also know that they can find people to talk to who will help them and that talking to them or even just tuning in and listening to us might in some way relieve some of that burden. I hope that wherever people are, if they're in that situation right now, they can get the help they need and talk to someone like you. So I want to thank you for being here and giving us insight into dealing with death and dying and for the important work that you do. That concludes this episode of Heart to Heart with Michael. I'll talk with you soon. And until then, please remember, it's okay to breathe. Thank you again for joining us. We hope you have gained strength from listening to our program. Heart to Heart with Michael can be heard every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. We'll talk again next time when we'll share more stories. If you would like to continue today's discussion, please join us right after the program in the Hug Podcast Chat Room on Pal Talk. Heart to Heart with Michael is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more.